beautiful crowd this morning and a beautiful day. Uh, we're going to look at a sad story this morning that is full of wisdom. And as I begin, uh, I'm reminded, and I know very well that you should never, ever begin a sermon with a Latin phrase. You're going to lose your people immediately. I'm going to do it because it really does set this up. The Latin phrase is simul justus et peccator. Simul at the same time, justus just et peccator and a sinner. At the same time, just and a sinner. Now Martin Luther is the guy that came up with that and the idea is I know I'm justified by Christ but I'm still a sinner. That's the reality. So when you teach a text like this, you better be saying to yourself, at the same time just by the grace of God, at the same time a sinner. And so that's the way I'm going to preach it this morning, uh, not preaching down, but preaching to all of us. Now you only need to uh, turn on the television, say the soaps in the afternoon, or look at your smartphone, or look at your computer, to feel the heat of oppressive sensuality. It's everywhere. Most of the oppression is crude, like uh, turning the dial and monotonously seeing couples wrapped in bedsheets and sensual monotony. But a lot of it is artistic and penetrating. I only have to think back through the years of, uh, of uh, a Calvin Klein attitude where it shows a bottle of obsession and the guy's face goes through the bottle as he says, uh, as he intones the idea of obsession. It's, 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 all, it's all over the place. Uh, and it's increasingly artful. Recent spots show lines from, say, D.H. Lawrence and, uh, and Flaubert quoting their poetry as the guy wanders around the room in illicit relationships. So the sticky steam of sensuality permeates all of culture. And uh, though it's everywhere, the sensualists are not satisfied. In fact, there was a professor at New York Law School by the name of H.A. Richard who advocated freedom for hardcore pornography anywhere, anytime. And he argued, and listen to this, and I'm quoting, Pornography can be seen as a unique medium of sexuality, a pornotopia, a view of sensual delight in the erotic celebration of the body, a concept of easy freedom without consequences, a fantasy of timeless, repetitive indulgence. When I first uh, read that, word pornotopia, I thought, what is that, a ride at Disneyland? I mean, it has the same kind of ring. Uh, no wonder our culture 
sweats sensuality. Now, I won't bore you with this, but uh, Leadership Magazine some years ago uh, polled 1,000 pastors and found out that 12% of them had committed adultery while in the ministry, and 23% had done something they considered sexually inappropriate. Now, that is to an educated audience of pastors. Well, the statistics have, have come out in recent years through Pew Research, and it has even increased. Shocking statistics, especially when you remember that the Christianity Today readers are educated church leaders, elders, deacons, Sunday school superintendents, and teachers. How much of the church is infected with this? Only God knows. But he does know. So what that leads to is the conclusion that contemporary evangelical church broadly considered is Corinthian to the core. There was a fellow California pastor named Ray Steadman, and when he preached through First and Second Corinthians, he called it First and Second Californians. Fits, doesn't it? The fact is, is that we are being stewed in the molten juices of sensuality. So the fact is, no wonder the church has lost its grip on holiness. No wonder it is often very slow to discipline its members. That's been my experience over the years. No wonder it is dismissed as, as irrelevant by contemporary culture. No wonder many of its children reject it. No wonder it's lost its power in many places. So I would say that sensuality is one of the biggest problems of the contemporary church. It's wreaking havoc on the church because godliness and sensuality are mutually exclusive. I hope we all understand that. And it's up to us to begin to take everything into account and begin to discipline us ourselves for purity. Take some holy sweat in this respect. So where to turn to but help? Well, this chapter, this sad chapter in 2 Samuel 11, which records the experience of King David for us all. Now, as the account begins, David is at the summit of his brilliant career, as high as any man has been in biblical history. Now, think about David. From childhood, he was a passionate lover of God. The scriptures celebrate this. He had an immense integrity of soul. So that when he was called by God to his job in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, Samuel says, explaining about David, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God looked at his heart and he liked what he saw. He loved this man's 
heart. Now, it's a great heart. It was a brave heart. If, you're, if you love good preaching, then you go to 1 Samuel 12, and you've got David and Goliath, and man, what a story when this giant comes out and threatens all of Israel. And David, as a boy who's been communing with God, looks at him, takes his sling, and begins to whirl that thing around his head and runs full speed towards the giant and lets go of a stone and hits him right between the running lights and down he goes. He knew God was with him. He knew who God was. And he was also the archetypal sanguine personality, a lover of people, a poet who knew the heartstrings of his people, a brave man, a man's man. He liked people, confident, enthusiastic, overflowing with charisma. So sensitive was he that the poetry he has given us in the Psalms stirs our heartstrings today, does it not? Probably this week it did that to yours. Hardly a candidate for moral disaster. But he was vulnerable because there were discernible cracks in the foundation, flaws in his conduct, which we'll consider. Now, I want to say, I, I have hardly ever in my life preached with alliteration, you know, where everything lines up, and especially with big words. But I'm going to do it today so you can follow. And so the words are relaxation, fixation, rationalization, and ultimately degeneration. Man, that'll preach. 2 Samuel 5 records that David's initial assumption to power in Jerusalem adds almost as an aside. This is in 2 Samuel 5.13. Listen, this is when he's ascended to power. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. Now, I want us to note right at the beginning that his taking wives was a sin. This fascinating passage in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17, where it tells us that Hebrew kings were to do, not to do three things. They were to refrain from acquiring many horses, refrain from taking many wives, and refrain from accumulating silver and gold. And he did great on silver and gold. He did great on the horses, but on the wives, he sinned greatly. Considerable harem. Now, we have to understand that the progressive desensitization to sin, that, that consequent inner descent from holiness had taken its effect on his life. For uh, Oriental potentate and Middle Eastern culture, it wasn't illegal to have many wives. I mean, in the general culture of the day. Nevertheless, it was sin. According to this, this uh, teaching in God's word, and his sensual indulgence desensitized him to God's holy call and all the danger and consequences. 
So in short, this oriental king with his permitted sensuality desensitized him to God's call and made him pray for a fatal attack of sin in his life. That first thing, desensitization. I just want to say to all of us, there are all kinds of, should I put it, legal sensualities, cultural accepted indulgences, which will take us down. Hours with your smartphone or your computer screen or your television can numb us to the danger and consequences of falling. In fact, it's kind of culturally cachet. It's expected today. You've got, to, you've got to be into contemporary culture. You've got to know what's going on. You've got to know the double entendres. You've got to know the inside jokes. You've got to be cool. And when I'm talking to men, the expected double entendres that you know and can smile at, coarse humor, laughter at things that ought to make you blush if you're really a man, because the world wonders that you don't run with them in these things, that you don't approve of these things. And so the expected culturally cachet sensualities can soften us, even the legal sensualities. So this man was desensitized. Second flaw in David's conduct which opened him to disaster was his relaxation from the rigors and discipline which had been part of his life. Now he'd been preaching through his life. Man, what a life. And when you get to Mephibosheth, that compassion and that love, so redolent of Christ, in the preceding chapter when all of those enemies have been conquered, he is at midlife. Uh, his military campaigns have been successful. He, he, he rightly gave the mopping up to General Joab. I mean, that's a smart thing to do when you're middle-aged. The problem was the relaxation extended to his moral life. Very interesting thing. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I know that uh, during the, the regular disciplines of life in my life and routine, if I was to be vulnerable at any time, it would be when I'm on vacation. Got nobody to answer to, no schedule, I'm free. I think there's a little bit of psychology. And I don't, I know he didn't know what was going to happen to him on that spring day. All the war is over, Joab mopping up, sitting on top of everything, on top of the world. He didn't get up and say, my, what a beautiful day. I think I'll commit adultery. That wasn't in his mind at all. So I say, just when we say we're the safest, if we have any kinds of assumptions about that, any kinds of... I'm beyond that type of thing. That will never happen to me. Be very careful. So he'd relaxed. 
Then, as was read this morning in the opening verses of 2 Samuel, we read, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, the text says, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. Hebrews explicit, the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out her name, about her. The man said, and it's an interrogative, it's a question, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, your soldier, your loyal soldier? Now you get the idea, if you're in this area of the world, that in the springtime, been a, a warm day, evening was falling, so he strode out on his roof to take a look at his domain in the cool evening air, and as he gazed, his eye caught the form of an unusually beautiful woman bathing without modesty. As to how beautiful she was, the Hebrew is explicit. The woman was beautiful of appearance, very. That's how the Hebrew says it. She was the flower of life. She was a young woman. The evening shadows made her more enticing. Now, the king looked, and he continued to look. You know, at first glance, he should have retired to his chamber, but he didn't. And this is what happened. It has to be. And his look became a sinful, sinful stare, a long, sinful stare, and then burning, libidinous, sweaty leer. And in that moment, King David, who had been a man after God's own heart, became a dirty, leering old man. And he wouldn't be denied. What was going on in his head? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer made the observation that when lust takes control, I'll say this very carefully, when lust takes control at that moment, God is quite unreal to us. He, that is God, loses all reality. And then Bonhoeffer says, Satan doesn't fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. You know that's what's going on with him. What a, a world of wisdom that when we're in a grip of lust, reality of God fades. And the longer David leered, the less real God became. And not only was his view of God diminished, but there was a growing darkness. He lost a sense of who he was. 
his holy call, his frailty, and the consequences of sin. That is what lust, fixated lust does. It's done it not millions of times, it's done it trillions of times. God disappears to lust-gazed eyes. And so in the midst of this culture, if we're involved that, the question might be, has God faded from view? Did you once see God in technicolor, all that, that beauty, that power that we sing about and celebrate? Well, has that, that color faded to a, a, an old photograph? Sepia tones. We need to see him in bright hues as to who he is. Okay. Going on with the alliterations. From deadly fixation, David descended to the next level down, which is rationalization. Now, when the servant came and, and tried to dissuade him with that, that question, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your favorite soldiers? He wasn't rebuffed. Some massive rationalization took place in his mind. It's, uh, I think, very much like J. Allen Peterson suggested in this uh, very suggestive title, The Myth of Greener Grass. It's always greener on the other side of the fence. And he gives us what he thinks are David's thoughts. Uriah is a great soldier, but he's probably not much of a husband or a lover. Years older than she is, and he'll be away for a long time. This girl needs a little comfort in her loneliness. This is one way that I can help her. No one will get hurt. I don't mean anything wrong by it. This is not lust. I've known that many times. This is love. This is not the same as finding a prostitute on the street. God knows that. And to the servant, bring her to me. Now, a mind controlled by lust is capable of infinite re 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 rationalization. How can something of such enjoyment be wrong? God's will is for me to be happy. Certainly, he wouldn't deny me anything that's essential to my happiness. And this is it. How very modern and stupid question here is one of love. I'm acting out of love, the highest love. You Christians, with your judgmentalism, make me ill. You're judging me. You're a greater sinner than I am. Judge, the only, only verse in the Bible this person knows is, judge not, lest you be judged. Quote it back. Some of the rationalizations. So, you begin to see this whole thing. David's progressive desensitization, his relaxation, his fixation, and his rationalization leads to his degeneration. 
verses 4 and 5 of the text. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. And the messenger said, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Now, David was unaware that he had stepped off a precipice and he was free falling and that the ground was coming up fast. So we see him kind of flailing in all of this as he falls and falls and falls. And we're all familiar with David's despicable behavior because he became a calculating liar, a calculating murderer, and a calculating adulterer. Tried to cover up. Suffice it to say, and this, this is really true, at this time Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. Now a year later, David repented under the withering accusation of the prophet David. And, and I want to say, if you think that he was uh, just oblivious and joyful, all you need to do is read Psalm 32, when he talks about how his strength was desiccated, life's juices were sucked out of him as he hadn't confessed his sin, that his bones fell rotten, he had a porosis of, of bones. He felt like he was falling apart. It says that God's hand was heavy upon him. He was one miserable soul as a monarch with his unconfessed sin. That year was not a nice year for David. But that year went by of misery, and there came the withering accusation of the prophet Nathan. But the consequences couldn't be undone. Now, it's often been pointed out, you need to hear this. In breaking the Tenth Commandment, that is, coveting his neighbor's wife, that led David to commit adultery, breaking the Seventh Commandment. Then, in order to steal his neighbor's wife, therefore breaking the Eighth Commandment against stealing, he committed murder and broke the Sixth Commandment. And then he broke the Ninth Commandment by bearing false witness against his brother. This all brought dishonor to his parents. He broke the fifth commandment. So he broke five through ten with that sin. And then the first four are giving honor to God, and he dishonored God, took his name in vain. He broke all the commandments that relate to loving one's neighbor as oneself, and he dishonored God. So I just want to say, there's no such thing as simple adultery. And from here on, it's downhill. I won't steal the thunder from anybody that's preaching on this, but his baby died. His beautiful daughter, Tamar, was raped by her half-brother, Amnon, despicably. You'll see that in the next chapter. In turn, Amnon was murdered by Tamar's full brother Absalom. And then Absalom so came to hate his father David for his moral turpitude that he led a rebellion under the tutelage of Bathsheba's 
resentful grandfather, Ahithophel. Nice. David's reign lost the smile of God, and his throne never regained its former stability despite his laudable repentance, as you see in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And I want to say that if he'd have seen what had happened because of what he did, he would have never done it. Few would. So the tragic fall of David's been given to the church in this Corinthian age. Why? to give the pathology of what happens in this kind of sin, the desensitization, the moral relaxation, the sensual fixation, the rationalization of those in its grips. This brought adultery, lying, murder, family degeneration, and national decline. Now I wrote this down very carefully uh, this was given to frighten us, to scare the hell of sensuality out of us. We ought to be frightened. Well, sometimes, and, I, and it's gotten more frequent today, I encounter Christians, people under the Christian umbrella, that the kind of teaching, the kind of strictness is given in Scripture is content, called Victorian and Puritanical. And in answering that, I always take them to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, as was read this morning, which begins, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And then the final line. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you the Holy Spirit. And the teaching is... You are rejecting the Holy Spirit who is at present speaking to you. That's the sense. In fact, just to show that I'm not staying alone on that, the New Testament scholar Leon Morris has written, No man who carries on an act of impurity is not simply breaking a human code, nor even sinning against God who at some time in the past gave him the gift of the Spirit. He's sinning against God who is present at that moment, against one who continually gives the Spirit. The impure act is an act of spite against God's good gift at the very moment it is being offered. The sin is seen in its true light only when it is seen as a preference for impurity rather than the Holy Spirit who is holy. Withering. Therefore, a professed Christian to reject his teaching regarding this is rejecting the Holy Spirit. And I want to say in this culture today where uh, recent statistics have shown that millennials, millennials regard abusing the environment as a worse sin than involved in adultery or fornication. That's where the culture is. 
Well, we live in a Corinthian porticopian culture, and we need to pay great attention to our godliness. And I'm just going to give a few hints. These are not, I'm going to list these things. These are not legalistic things. So I'm always wary of four, four things or five things. So I'm not giving them as legalisms at the end of this sermon. But we need a discipline of accountability. And I think that's pretty commonly understood culturally. I think men understand that. Your accountability, first of all, ought to be to your partner, your wife. But uh, my best friend, who's now deceased, had his funeral about eight years ago, David McDonald. I was best man at his wedding. He was best man at my wedding. When I was 14 and he was 16, we became buddies when we, did, we outdid Ferris Bueller's day off. And one day in Southern California, we went body surfing. We went to the desert and spun big donuts in his Plymouth out in the desert. We shot up some bottles. And then we went to the snow. So we did the ocean, the desert, the snow, and then we went down to Long Beach and watched War of the Worlds with a bunch of sailors. That was our, we're, we're buddies. This great buddy of mine was a traveling salesman and he always had two or three guys that knew where he was and what he was doing. They kept track of him. The other thing is, and if you think this is legalism, is prayer. How many people are struggling with this when they don't pray intensely for deliverance and for godliness? To really pray about our lives, that's the most you can do. Pray for the purity of your friends, your own purity. Pray for your children. Enlist the prayers of spouse and friends. I'm amazed at the people that don't even have that in their prayer life. And then, you know this one is a good one is memorization. The psalmist said, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. That's Psalm 119.9. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.11, two verses later. All of it is God's word. And the passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 that we read just now, or Job 31.1, or Proverbs 6.27. I'll mention some of those things. And then, just to guard our minds, which is largely to guard our eyes. And I, I would say that if you're front, in front of a computer screen, you've got your iPhone, it's got everything in the world that you could possibly think of on it. You've got, you know, you've got those uh, uh, movies and videos. If you have a constant stream of that, and that's what's going through your mind, you in one week will see more adulteries, perversions than our grandfathers read about in their entire lives. In one week. And here the most radical action is necessary. Jesus said, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. So he's talking about allowing the rottenness of all this raunchy stuff and soft porn magazines and pornography to flow through a house needs to be tossed out. I love Job's words, Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes 
not to look lustfully at a woman. So guess what? If he'd been on top of that building that day, he'd have looked the other way. Job understood the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 6.27, can a man scoop fire into his lap without being burned? And so it goes. And then there's the mouth and what you say. For out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I want everyone to hear this in a, this culture today, right now. This is Ephesians 5, 3, and 4. But, Ephesians 5, 3, and 4. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed. Not because these are improper for God's people. Then he says, now listen, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. No sexual humor. No urbane vulgarities that you get and the children don't get. No coarseness. No potty talk. And a lot of Christians are prone to this just to say, I'm, 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 a, I'm a natural person. I, I just want you to know I'm like you. Oh, really? And then I would say, I'll just leave it at this. You need to put some hedges around your life when you work together with the opposite sex. I'm not going to say so much about that, but I'll just mention the Billy Graham rule. You know what that is? He never rode anywhere with a woman in a car if his wife wasn't present, there was another male. He stayed out of elevators. And I can tell you right now that Billy Graham's reputation is as pure as the driven snow. And then the last thing, and this is, this is probably the biggest one, is divine awareness. You remember Joseph in Egypt when he had been kidnapped by his brothers. He'd been sold into slavery off the block of Egypt. He had become a servant in Potiphar's house. He was hundreds and hundreds of miles away, separate from his family. No one knew anything about it. No one would know what he does. He was about 18 years old. Uh, he, I love what the scripture says. You know, he was... Uh, he was beautiful of appearance and form. That means he probably had a six-pack for his abs. He looked great in one of those uh, Egyptian outfits. Virile, full of hormones. And Mrs. Potiphar hits on him. No one's going to know. Nobody's going to know a thing. But he turns her down because he knows that God is present. He says in Genesis 39:9, how could I do such a thing, he said, and sin against God? This is a great thing. God sees everything. David, in his lust-glazed eyes, had forgotten the presence of God. He had forgotten who God was. He had forgotten who he was. And he'd forgotten that sin always has consequences. So this uh, ancient story taken from the life of David is meant to inform us 
and sanctify us and may God use his word to his glory in our lives. Let's pray. Father, when I began to preach, I said, justified in the same, at the same time a sinner. I hope that no one heard this talk from an old man as talking down, but simply being under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and preaching as it were the very oracles of God. I pray God that you would use it in the lives of those that need to hear it, actually all of us, because at the same time we're justified, we're still sinners. Deliver us from our sin, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.